Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Hello, and welcome to GodPod number 40. We are into the 40s now. It means we're getting middle-aged. Just as I'm leaving them. Well, <laughs> leaving left them. Left them. <laughs> Oh, you're leaving, leaving your 40s, you mean? Yes, well, it's been a little while now, actually, since I had contact with them. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost them. I can't remember where they, where they went. Yeah, the, secrets. the rest of us are not going to enter into this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Senior moment. Exactly, that's right. Yeah, yes, Mike's letting you in on the secrets of his age. Yes. Um, but uh, today we have, uh, as you've heard already, Mike is here. I am. And yes, uh, Jane yes. as well. Hello. And we have Chris, Chris Tilling. Uh, we also have a special guest today who is um, Dr. Luke Bretherton. Hello. Uh, Luke is um, the Senior Lecturer in Theology and Politics at King's College uh, here in London. And uh, he's the author of a, of a very fine book, which I read over the summer and really enjoyed, called uh, Hospitality as Holiness, Christian Witnesses Amid Moral Diversity, which is a very good book. It's also rather expensive, isn't it? Yeah, it's come down. It's now, it's now cheap. It's now £16. Is it? Pounds. £16. So pounds. That is very good news. I bought it on the expensive yeah, price, Yeah, I'm sorry of about that. They just slashed the price. Yeah, they, okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll send it back and ask for a new one. You can it, never pay too much for holiness anyway. That's yeah. true. That is very true. <laughs> very good. Hospitality should be, hospitality should be free. <laughs> <laughs> it was the holiness bit you were paying for. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, um... Anyway, Luke, it's great to have you with us today. It's very, very good to be here. And um, King's College London is something we have quite a few links with now, with, with the St Paul's Theological Centre, and uh, uh, we do little bits of teaching there, and some of the staff from um, King's come and teach with us as well, which is great. Um, but Luke, and, you... and also we have um, courses done jointly yeah. with, with King's and yeah. Master's, master's programmes. Yeah, really... right. So it's a very, very exciting yeah. theology and uh, ministry uh, MA series, which a number of your students are participating yeah. in. It's yeah. a kind of joint, partly joint venture. That's so. right. So if there are people out there listening to this who are interested in doing an MA in some aspect of theology and ministry, I'd recommend looking at the King's College website because there's some very good courses on that. But uh, Luke, you, you've, you've been um, getting around a little bit, and I gather you've been in the States recently and went to a rather interesting event. I did. I had, well, I had the great, great, great good fortune. It was completely serendipitous. I was um, over in, in Chicago and I booked it a year ago. Uh, I'm doing some research on something called community organising. And as some of you may know, uh, it was um, uh, Barack Obama cut his teeth as a community organiser in Chicago. And that was mm. the beginning of his political career. And I looking at the involvement of churches in it. It's a very f- interesting form of kind of urban political engagement. It's been going since the 1950s. It was founded by someone called Saul Alinsky, actually, in Chicago in, in the 1930s. Um, and he, his kind of thing was, was how do you stop things like kind of street crime gangs, um, improve things like local health and this kind of stuff. And his basic analysis was you've got to organise people um, rather than either state welfare systems or kind of charity. You've got to get communities and institutions together to kind of generate their own solutions born out of local um, responses. And he's, it was always always worked through the churches, and, and Obama himself worked mainly through the black majority right, churches yeah. in Chicago. So I'm, I'm doing a kind of big research project on this and the origins and, and kind of intellectual yeah. development of it. So I was, I was in Chicago that week, and someone said, oh, you do realize it's the election? And I went, oh my goodness, of course, this is really exciting. <laughs> so I had the great privilege. I, I met, a, uh, I was kind of working with some of the community organizers still going in, in mm. Chicago, and they took me out on the November the 4th um, doing voter turnout in south of chicago which is a completely 
um, kind of African American. But Chicago is a very, very racially divided city. Mm. It's, it's the north is white and the south is black. Mm. Um, so that was fascinating, just going out with them and doing helping helping with some voters turnout. And they were all going off to the rally um, uh, at Grand yeah. Park, mm. um, which, which is the, the one on the evening. Is the, the one of the evening itself. of the election when. Barack Obama then gave his acceptance speech. I said, oh, I'll come and, you know, hang out and soak up the atmosphere. And it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful evening. Yeah. And, mm. and so when we got to the gate, I kind of noticed that you could get in if, if someone, you could go in as a guest if someone had a ticket. So I kind of shoved myself beside someone <laughs> who didn't have anyone with them and managed to kind of wangle my way in. And one, yeah. by one thing, it led to another. I actually got into Grant, Grant Park to mm. witness oh. uh, the, the acceptance speech. It was an amazing thing to see. But I, I was kind of having been completely euphoric. I suddenly had to switch into religious scholar mode because there was yeah. this extraordinary thing, which, as I understand it, no one really saw on any of the television presentations, which was, uh, first of all, we had the Pledge of Allegiance um, given. So it's, you remember, it's kind of several thousands of people all gathered. And apparently this only takes place in schools. So this was a kind of first... It was, and bear in mind, this is a democratic party not known <laughs> for its kind of patriotic... Mm tub thumping um and so they did the pledge of allegiance as a kind of way of as i thought okay this is we've got the crowd the oklos in greek so everyone, terms everyone in the crowd did the it did the pledge of allegiance. allegiance so we've got to turn them from an oklos a crowd yeah. into a demos into a people into yeah. a kind of mm. political yeah. entity and the pledge of allegiance is a kind of almost sacred vow mm. to do this mm. and then uh this preacher got up and I thought, okay, this is interesting. What's going on here? And I, I haven't been able to find out. I think he was either African Methodist, um, which is the kind of black majority Methodist uh, stream, or he was an Episcopalian, but I'm not sure who he was. Um, but this, this guy got up, he was a bishop, and gave this kind of quarter of an hour prayer. Uh, which is an extraordinary thing, and it kept an quoted Amos. Thing. It kind of a, partly extemporary. I wasn't sure. I think it was partly extemporary. Yeah. Partly written. He quoted Amos five, "Let justice roll down from matters." And there was a strange element of kind of Obama messianic, bring us this figure who will heal our divide, mm. and this kind of just remember, guys, politics won't deliver the hope and change. You know his key messages that you really need yeah. mm. uh, that only comes from God. Which so is it's very a, interesting because you, you always think of Republicans as being more the party that will do exactly. public prayer, religion in public life, and Democrats have always been rather nervous about it. Exactly. So it's fascinating. Very so here is yeah. this kind of very strong, you talk about lack of church-state separation, right at the heart yeah. of this moment was this mm. kind of sacred event. You know, And then we had the Star Spangled Banner. So we had the kind of sacred totems you know the pledge of allegiance the the, the flag mm. held up and kind of celebrated and then sandwiched between them was this was this prayer and then obama mm. came on and you know and gave then a speech which actually because i switched into the kind of mm. mode mm. had all this eschatological language of you know we you know, i don't mm. remember the line he goes um we we're, we're not black and white, old and young, able, disabled, gay or straight. We are the United States. And I had this kind of yeah. America as this city set on a hill, drawing on that very strong covenantal kind of yeah. theology, mm. um, right back to Calvin and the mm. Pilgrim Fathers yeah. and all the rest of it, of this. But it was a kind of a realized eschatology going on. And, and the other interesting thing about the event was, of course, it was a very, being as, as well as being this kind of global event, it was this very local Chicago event in that Grant Park was the place where 40 years before there'd been a riot on exactly the same place against the previous mayor um, of, of the mayor at the time, who was Mayor um, Richard Daly, uh, who was one of the most racially mm. divisive mm. mayors. So it was an extraordinary 
thing, actually, to have Obama get up and be this figure of reconciliation between the two halves of Chicago in exactly the same spot. But the funny thing was that the next day, around all the lampposts and the courts of justice and City Hall, there appeared these banners with the kind of standard Obama kind of insignia. And then on the side of Chicago, uh, congratulates President-elect Barack Obama, signed Mayor Jay Daly, which was the son of the original racist yeah, really. mayor. Yeah. So it was this hilarious moment of kind of this insurgent kind of democratic statement of this, you know, mm. great turnout mm. and voting mm. for this historic figure. On one hand, and in Chicago terms, it was kind of business as usual. He was the oligarchy, mm. you know, mm. <laughs> it was continuity. We're gonna, yeah. we're gonna kind of. So there's a, there's a kind of slight irony in this, in this, and the, that whole sense of this very local and yet national, and then also global resonance of this yeah. event. But but kind of strange mixture between mm. <clears throat> really encouraging, yeah, uh, in terms of the vision for, for unity and, and the fact that this chap's son was now welcoming ever president. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and rather disturbing yeah. in terms of the messianic thing and the sense that, you know, uh, there was neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor yeah. free, black or, you know, black or white, all are one in the United States of America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. The, the, that taking the place of Christ in some way. Well, I think, I mean, you've got to, there's the whole, you know, out of many, one, e pluribus unum, kind of vision of America as the melting yes. pot. So mm. there's always been this, is it a realised eschatology, isn't it? Is this a kind of a, a, mm. a, a political form of some notion by which, you know, all political communities should really aim for drawing different peoples from different places into a kind of common mm. project that's a legitimate... Yeah. Sure political um exercise but then with that there's there's a difference between that and a kind of an overlay of this kind of sacralization of that that mm. we are and and i think it's interesting people often see a great distinction between bush and, and obama I, i'm not sure in terms of their view of american exceptionalism mm. and the mm. vision of america as the deliverer of kind of democratic salvation and markets and all the rest of it to the mm. rest of the world. Mm. It's not, it's dif difference of means, but not of mm. ends, as it were, between them. And I think that does have a very, there is a form of a kind of civil religion mm. yes. dynamic at work in that. And it's, it, it is deeply in the Puritan psyche, isn't it? Yeah. That, that, that is, again, it's one of the ironies of modern America, it seems to me, that, that, that you know, the sort of Puritan mindset that came with the Pilgrim Fathers is still very much there in terms of, of a, you know the Puritans very much feeling themselves as this chosen elect mm. covenant mm. people of God with a particular purpose and 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 whether it's you know obviously it, it took a rather sinister form in in South Africa mm -hmm. uh, the same sort of idea of kind of reformed Christians going to South Africa and feeling themselves the chosen people mm. uh, and that generated a you know sort of deeply disturbing form of racism there and and, and I suppose in, in some ways in, in the states as well but. You know, still within the heart of America, there is that 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 very strong sense of of, of being a chosen nation, chosen to lead the world. And mm. uh, um, I guess one of the interesting things about, about it is, or I suppose two interesting things. One is how that relates to this kind of Christian community within mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the United States, um, and particularly, you know, what's happening to the uh, the kind of evangelical vote, all that mm -hmm, kind of question. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I was in I was in New York the week before the election and. And um, uh, again, very interesting seeing a lot of, I didn't see any pro-McCain budgies, but right. lots of 
you know, pro-Obama badges around the place. But I did meet with one or two more conservative Christians who were who were deeply sort of anxious about yeah. uh, Obama and anxious about his links with sort of radicals and, you know, was he really a Muslim and mm-hmm. he's got Hussein as his middle name and what yeah, all that yeah. sort of yeah. mean and so on. And this deep sort of fear of, of, of what he, he, he stood for. But at the same time, you sense a lot of younger evangelicals yeah. saying, actually, we don't want that. You know, mm-hmm. people who are more concerned for the regeneration of, of, of inner cities, they're concerned about racism, they're mm-hmm. concerned about AIDS, they're concerned about those issues mm-hmm. rather than the traditional... I, I, mean, I think one of the really interesting things is that there is a definite shift in the religious landscape in relation to politics mm. in America at the moment. I had very interesting conversations with someone called Amy Sullivan, who's a Time journalist and mm. wrote a very well-received book called Closing the God Gap for, about the Democratic Party's relationship to religion. And she, she was making some very interesting points about how um, actually the Obama campaign, the Democrats have traditionally kind of viewed religious people as the Republicans' territory. Yeah. They haven't really done it. And one of the kind of things, big things Obama did was to say, okay, no one's ruled out. We need to go and meet people and see what they think. And I think there's a, there's a, was a dynamic. He, he, part of his success was, was he didn't um, pre-stigmatise or say actually only... Mm. Um, you know, certain people vote Democratic, other people vote Republican. But one one of the one of the things they did, she said, they did miss was they didn't engage with younger evangelicals. They just have this kind of the Democratic Party does have this kind of shutter, which goes evangelicals are kind of we do black religion, we don't do white religion. Uh, and she said that she was trying to encourage them. Say, look, there's a whole bunch of and there's lots of research from things like the Pew um, Trust and Foundation to show that younger evangelicals on campuses are, are precisely interested in ecological questions, uh, kind of social justice questions, mm. and a kind of low-hanging fruit for the Democratic yeah. Party. Mm. But they, out of a kind of secularist ideological block, couldn't really yeah. go there. But on the flip side of that, one of the biggest changes in religious, religi- uh, kind of religious landscapes in the States is the whole, obviously the immigration of um, Latin Americans mm. and the emergence of a pro-life, a democratic hmm. um catholic ca- catholic yep. Yep. um constituency and that's going to be i think a very interesting development uh, in this relationship between religion yeah. and politics mm-hmm. it does i mean it does make you um wonder whether there is a quite a seismic shift going on that if actually the religious landscape of america which is usually influ- influential on mm-hmm. the rest of the world mm-hmm. is is shifting and and therefore the you know the very powerful conservative evangelical lobby is now no longer automatically republican concerned primarily for issues like abortion and and um gay marriage and everything else not they're not mm-hmm. concerned about that but but there's a n- number of other issues coming on the agenda issues of social justice which you sense is increasingly true for younger evangelicals in the states what that's going to do Worldwide. I think I think it's I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, I think it just in terms of I think the Democrats have traveled have to travel to the center and take issues pro life mm. issues mm. more seriously, mm. um, and then the kind of the the religious right, as it were, it mm. has been it's kind of grown up. It's become mm. it's become much more multifaceted, mm. and you can't mm. easily pigeonhole. It. I'm not sure if you ever yeah. really could, but it's yeah. certainly it's a more complex picture now. So I think it's there's a kind of change on both sides of the aisle, as it were. Mm. I mean, I, it, one of the other things that will be very interesting in the whole American um, messianic self-image is not having any money because mm. um, you realise that a lot of America's power recently has been being that kind of a superpower um, and that's going to affect us 
here in Britain as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 that whole change of 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 um, this, the, our relationship with with other markets and things because of not having um, uh, that certainty and foundation in money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be interesting to to have your your view on how that's affecting not just. America, but also us here in London, it, our, our sense of what we can actually do and achieve right. in a, a changing um, economic climate. I, I think it's a, I think it's a very very important question. I mean, I think one of the interesting things, and it's going back to the community organising aspect um, that I, I spoke about earlier on, is that one of the things about the, the the nature of what we've gone through is how markets have become kind of disembedded from wider social political relationships they've mm. kind of floated free mm. from um regulation from social norms they seem to be self-generating self-subsisting and one of the interesting things you see especially in poor urban contexts whether it's in london or chicago or baltimore or these kind of places you know de-industrialized places or places you know large cities which which have strong large kind of poor mm. urban areas is the impact of that kind of dis- disembedded market. So things like um, the selling off of school playing fields mm. for property development mm. um, and and the way in which churches, and this is how community organising has functioned, is, is almost an attempt, one way you can understand it, to re-embed markets. Markets have a place, but they must know their place. Like the state has a place, mm. but it must know its place. And it's constantly, you know, we live in a fallen world, they're constantly trying to overstep their proper boundaries um and then that and it's often the poor who are most affected mm. by that and you see that played out in, in urban contexts and mm. something like that's part of my interest in community organizing as, as a way of trying to say look we we want jobs we want we need large kind of you know banks or rest of it but they they, they have a there's a kind of social responsibility there's a there's a uh, they have to take account of the places they're in and being good neighbours, like you would expect everyone else to be a good neighbour. Mm. And how do you do that? And, the, for instance, in, in the London context, the living wage campaign, which um, London Citizens has, has been spearheading, initially targeted with the HSBC, you know, huge global bank. And um, one of the interesting things that came out was they're great fans of it. It was for their cleaners and security staff to have a slightly higher wage above the minimum wage just to reflect the cost of transport and housing and stuff in a city like London. Um, and they they saw their productivity go up. They've become great advocates of it and persuaded other banks in Canary Wharf and places like that to do it. But I think those kinds of moves where what the cr- current kind of financial situation has thrown up was actually market mechanisms can't deliver us. There's a If we have a, if a messianism of Obama or America, there's also a kind of messianism of the market the market will save us mm-hmm. and i think that's obviously been shown to be a kind of mm-hmm. false utopia and uh, as well a lot of the metaphors are precisely the invisible hand yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, of, yeah. The, of the market which will direct everything right it's it's a yeah. completely secularized providence isn't yeah it? yeah no exactly and, and you see that from adam smith yeah. onwards really yeah. and markets don't have neighborhoods do they markets i mean that's part of the, the trouble is markets are sort of Especially now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Globalised yeah. But I think that's what's up for grabs again. The, the, yeah. There's a sense in which, okay, yeah. well, look, there is yeah. a sense of place here. There is a, a way in which uh, these places, you know, it, it isn't that the jobs are tied to places, they're tied to families. You can't talk about people mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and wages. You can't talk about wages and money divorced from people and places. 
and that's been a kind of fiction we've all bought into that somehow they can all float free and yeah. that we begin yeah. to see that the impact of that and that people are beginning to kind of re and um, it brings it back to where you, you started mm-hmm. from which is the, the relationship between if you like markets and politics and local communities and particularly i suppose churches because mm-hmm. you know churches uniquely are embedded in local communities most of them mm-hmm. um even big mega churches are located in a particular place and draw people from a from, from a city, and um, and to that extent, you know, if, if we're talking about the, the limits of the market, the market has a place, but it must know its place in, in your phrase. Um, it opens up the possibility of partnerships between the market and business and churches and, and other f- mm-hmm. uh, facets to deliver transformation and change in cities. And, and I, that's what that leads on to the whole question of how we. How we understand cities and urban life as mm-hmm. Christians? What is a, mm-hmm. you know, what, what are the, um, what are the, the views of the city we get in, in Scripture? What are the views we get in, in, in Christian tradition? I mean, it's often been said that you know that the Bible begins in a garden, ends in a city. You know, the vision of the future is the holy city coming down from, from heaven. Uh, and yet, also, of course, the city in the Scripture is also you know Babylon, Rome, which is mm-hmm. sort of center of evil, the center of of all that's against God, and so the city has this very ambivalent role in in, in Scripture. And um, so I, I wonder what our thoughts were on that, really. I mean, both from a biblical perspective, but from you know your thoughts on urban theology and how that's developed and so on as well. But mm. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. There's a deeply, I mean, you see in someone like Augustine this deep, deep ambiguity. The city is both the city of God and the earthly city, mm. and they're, mm. they're bound in together. You can't separate them out. Mm. And we obviously we experience that in in our contemporary urban life. We find the best of the best and the worst of the worst, often cheek mm. by jowl, mm. in cities. And and I think one of the interesting things is obviously now we've just passed the point where the majority of the world's population now live in cities, mm. uh, and you know the, the place of urban mission and, and mm. kind of Christian witness, and I think there are some very interesting ventures of precisely the kind where this um, there is this kind of open space here where churches are moving in. There often we've seen a change both in the states and here of greater moves for partnership with churches in delivering social yeah. welfare, yeah. whether it's homeless mm. things or affordable housing or a whole range of, of social services in urban mm. contexts. And often then, for instance, someone like David Martin's work on Pentecostalism in Latin America, mm. showing that actually large, these large Pentecostal churches have a, a very, just rather than through engaging in a, active social programs, although they are themselves doing that, and there's a huge amount of that going on, but literally stopping people gambling and drinking and the mm. change, they start saving, their kids go to school, and this has a tra- this is transforming urban barriers you know, across Africa, mm. across mm. Latin America. So uh, there's a very interesting relationship. But obviously, I think especially speaking from a kind of English or British mm. context, we have this kind of utopian ideal of the countryside is, yeah. is where you tend to find yeah. this view of, we. I, I call it the... Um, get in, get up, get out mentality mm. of you get into cities yep. to kind of get ahead, but then you're really, your trajectory is to get out, to get yep. some rural ideal where you can yeah, have a nice safe, city. We, yeah, we yeah, it's a place you use it rather than live it, yep. which I think is different from a kind of continental mm. vision of urban 
a mm. kind of an urban life as, as a good life. Yeah. Um, mm. And that, that sense of... pictures you get uh, on posters, you know, kind of spiritual or Christian posters <laughs> and, <laughs> and on OHPs with the word, behind the words, are yeah. of waterfalls, <laughs> yeah. uh, sunsets, yeah, 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 yeah. ocean fields, cows, And when you talk about... Um, Faith in the city. You tend to talk about small units within the city, don't mm, you? So mm, you're trying to take it down to a neighbourhood or down to a church community or mm, um, a, a locality of some kind. But actually talking about a spirituality for the whole city, yeah, yeah. I've never heard it done, I don't think. And, and I think that's a real problem. We've got most of our actual understandings of discipleship, of spiritual disciplines, are either rural, they come from a kind of very rural context, and agricultural, the yeah. cycles of the Christian year, or they're monastic. Um, so they're completely divorced from mm. the city. And, and I think there is a real need to, especially now most people live in cities, mm. to re-engage with what it means to have a deeply formed um, vision of church and discipleship within urban context and the valuation and the struggles, the huge pressures, the acute pressures, but equally the huge opportunities. Well, you, you get some of this, don't you, in some charismatic circles, for better or worse, mm -hmm. of, um, of a... Uh, winning a city for Christ. Right, that's true. This, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how would that fit in, do you think? I think I mean, we see it in things like March for Jesus. You know, you march through a city in this kind of public, which yes. have very ancient, you know, think about the stational liturgies in, in Byzantium and the kind of marching around the city. Mm. There, there are resources there, I think, to draw on um, in, within Christian history. Mm. And, it's about reclaiming, isn't it? Is yes. it something yeah, 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 evil yeah, about yeah. it? So oh, we yeah. have to kind of mm. yeah. walk in and, and purify yeah. it. Yeah, There's a very op it's a very oppositional stance, yeah. that, isn't it? Yeah. The city yeah. is the kind of demon-possessed mm. place. Yes. Which, yeah, I mean, it has some, it has some, yeah, it has that side. I mean, that's that's the thing. And in a way, that's what happened in the third, fourth century. Was was in the whole monastic movement. It was deliberately a kind of moving out from the cities into the mm. into the desert. Mm, 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 you know, to to do, yeah. you know, to do battle with the demons and to do business mm. with God. And, and there was a move out of the, the cities precisely because cities were seen as very kind of, you know, um, well, it, it's, it, there's a, something strange going on there because the cities were seen as distracting places, places where there was so much going on that somehow distracted you from the spiritual life. But at the same time, the countryside was also seen as a place, you know, where you went into the desert precisely because that's where you could do battle with the demons inside yeah. and outside. Yeah. So it's not just that the demons are in the cities and the countryside was And, and the desert was seen as demon-possessed. Yeah. Exactly. It, right. it wasn't a kind yeah. of clean space. No. We tend to take that view, yeah. but it wasn't a clean space. Yeah. Um, and you, you get, you get an, there's something interesting happening in Scripture, isn't there? Because the Old Testament images very often are of a rural kind of nomadic, Mm -hmm. It comes out of of that, but of course, you shift into the New Testament. It is all city based. It's all mm -hmm. Corinth. It's all, all it's all Ephesus. It's you know, it's it's the, the Rome. Yeah, <laughs> Rome. That's right. Yeah, it's the yeah, cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but I think I think happens. there's I think there's a deep urban theology in 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 the in the Old Testament. The sense of well, I've always been very struck the move mm. of Jebus, the city Jebus, yeah. into Jerusalem. Yeah. So we have yeah. a pagan. Mm city that becomes the crucible of mm. divine presence mm. um, becomes the place becomes the paradigm of heaven yes yeah. anyway the new jerusalem mm. so there's this move there's always this transformational yeah. logic yeah. this mm. this transfiguring logic if you like yeah. 
in relation to urban mm. context. Whereas mm. you kind of have to just take as given the created order of in, in rural cycles and yeah. the mm. passing of the moon and all this kind of stuff. Whereas there's something much mm. more dynamic in the cities. It's both yeah. threat and promise. Yeah. You can change cities. And you can change cities. In a way that you can't with the Or we have cities of refuge. Yeah. And I think for me, the, one of the biggest and most important texts in all of this is, is obviously Jeremiah 29. Mm. And which you know, crucial text in 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 the life of of Israel. Seek, seek the welfare. Of seek the, the welfare of the city, mm. even though it be Babylon. Yes. That, that you have a yes. common life. Mm. That yeah. that mm. there might be that these aren't eternal goods, if mm. you like, playing fields, good schools, hospitals. Yep. This kind of, but they are earthly goods. They're not eternal goods, but they're earthly goods. Mm. They're goods, nevertheless. Mm. And I think that sense in which there's a deep realism mm. that within. In, as you go as a diaspora community or as an exile community, you're not at home. We don't live in the New Jerusalem, but there are goods in common to be pursued. Yeah, there's um, a, a tension, as I've reflected in, in a passage I've just um, stumbled on in Acts 18. This exact tension. He's, uh, it's in Corinth, and the Lord speaks to Paul. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Uh, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you. This threat of this big city, Corinth. But then he goes on, because I have many people in this city. There's the promise aspect again. Yeah. And this was, yeah. of course, the uh, central strategy that Paul adopted in his mission, is to go to the cities. I loved what you, you, you just mentioned, the idea of stations in a city, not the kind where the train goes, presumably, right. but, <laughs> but, but pilgrimage stations. Yeah. And, and I just wonder if there is some mileage in that for, for Christian communities actually to, uh, to, to identify spots in the city where, when you happen to be there, you treat it as a place of prayer, whether you could actually, mm -hmm. uh, and not, not, not assuming that you're going to drive out demons there, but assuming that, uh, like, a, like a church space, a place that is prayed in, mm -hmm. gets easier to pray in. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And that if we actually all took some responsibility for doing that around the city, that would be an interesting experiment, wouldn't it? Well, of course, in a city like London, you've, you've got a plethora, you have these churches. So many big that, churches, that, exactly. And so you have yeah. this kind of sense of here is a city where woven into the fabric of it is a kind of sacred geography, if you yes. like. There's, there's places of mm. presence, there's particular events happen, there, there are big churches and little <coughs> churches, and you have whole uh, an ecology that is this vision of, in a sense, this very Augustinian vision of, of embedded within the earthly city and woven within its very mm. You can't divorce it. You can't mm. suddenly take the churches out and put them in another place. It's, it's along the kind of avenues and, and byways has developed places of prayer, places of presence, places of mm. Christian witness and mission and service. And I think that's a, that, that is a very helpful way because you're not saying, and I think it goes back to something that, in one Peter, actually, that, that something like the city is not a monolithically bad space. You, you will encounter those who resist you, those who reject you, but those who will kind of respond, those who are allies but won't come, you know, won't adopt Christianity, or you know, and that that it's a, it's a much it's a it's a and in a sense it kind of keeps Christians honest, you know, that you're constantly having to negotiate a relationship with others of varying kinds, and that you're constantly having to be dependent on God. You can't just go with the flow mm. because cities uh, you make you very self-conscious about everything from family life to your work life to literally getting to and from work becomes a thing in itself. So t tell us what, because again, towards the end of our time, tell yeah. us what you think an urban spirituality would begin yeah. to look like. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, very good. Um, I, th- I think crucial to it is is a recovery of some sense of place that you have to. You can't view where you live simply instrumentally. Um, it's not simply it's not simply a dormitory you make use of for a time. So there's something there about who you live with in in cities and being self conscious about that. Perhaps kind of rules of life. And I know in, in for instance in I think it's in Sheffield they've looked at a kind of a rule of life within that particular city and they'll have particular times when they'll pray wherever they are as a as a community they quite self-conscious about living with people um, in a particular place and then extending out hospitality to your neighbours. So some people in our church um, decide to invite all their uh, neighbours to a barbecue. Very simple, but had a hugely transforming reconnecting people and places. And and I think that sense of disconnect or alienation that often takes place in, in cities. And can technology help here? As well as hinder. There's I, a sense yes. in which it divorces us from place, but mm-hmm. actually, there's no reason now why you can't all pray at the same time and you know have your laptop there. Well, I think <laughs> and join I think, in I the worship of your like, local community, your I local think, church. I or? think things where they're where they're so something like Facebook. I know a lot of churches in London have Facebook groups, which mm-hmm. means you can have a sense of what your other congregants are doing with the update pages and this kind of stuff. I, I think that's all part of it. It's is as a um, complement to face to face community rather than a replacement but i think there's something there about the communal people and places and i think there's also something um very very kind of old school disciplines of of prayer and fasting and this mm. because actually in in a consumer what is the kind of great antidote to consumerism some notion of waiting we're just entering la- advent season and, and fasting as a kind of antidote to the mm. pressures to buy and consume and which is so present mm. in the city which we're being urged to do for the sake of the economy of course Wait, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's true. one of the other aspects of an urban spirituality that seems to me is it there's a kind of love for the city and, and, mm. it, and its its mm. variety and its fertility yes. and everything else, mm. which I think is something that doesn't always come naturally to mm. Christians. I mean, again, going back to this, you know, the Desert Fathers thing of going out of the city because it's too distracting. There's too many things that kind of tempt you away from your devotion to God. But it seems to me that a, an urban spirituality is much more kind of life affirming in one sense mm. and affirming of the of the variety you get in cities and, and you know so cities can be quite disturbing places because genuinely speaking they can be kind of morally quite um various should we say um uh, you know all kinds of nasty stuff happens in cities yeah. Yeah. um that doesn't always happen in the countryside mm-hmm. you get nasty stuff in the countryside too um there's a huge you know certainly in a city like london where you've got what 300 languages yeah. spoken yeah. it's the whole world here which can be a very confusing place if you're but also it's a huge opportunity yeah you know the world's in london london's in the world exactly that's right yeah it happens in london there's yeah. a very it's like a barometer, especially in these great world cities we're yeah. seeing emerging, whether it's London and other places around the world. That's right. Yeah. You know, you've, you've got, you don't, in a sense, the mm. mission field is on your sure. doorstep. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's both, both seeing it as an opportunity, but also seeing it as a, an as a gift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yes. actually, when you're on the tube and there's no one else speaking English, they're all speaking Polish or Czech or yeah. or, 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 or Hindi or whatever it might be. Actually, that's, a, that, that's, that's a good thing in one sense, that, that mm-hmm. all these people together and, and you can... Um, so I think it's, it's this, this, this love for the city, which you say, rather than it's just somewhere I'm going to live for a while, but my goal is age 40 to kind of move me and my kids out to yeah, the countryside because yeah, yeah. um, that's kind of nicer. And I think that's and the ha- biggest... having a sense of a real calling. Yeah. 
that, to the that city. That really is the key. I mean, I think that's the absolutely kind of crucial mm. kind of move. Everything else flows from that. That instead of viewing the city, it's simply you some, somewhere you make use of for a time. Yeah. But viewing it, this is a place you're called to. And certainly in the early church, mm. that was a sense. We see, see that mm. I think throughout Christian history, mm. the sense that the city is a place that you're called into mm. to seek the welfare mm. of, yeah. and that 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 where you live mm. and and how you approach that is the biggest discipleship decision you can yeah. make. Yeah. And that that will have both positive and negative things. Yeah. That there'll be yeah. a huge amount to affirm and support, yeah. and so much that's going on yeah. culturally and in terms of looking out to people mm-hmm. who are sick and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we should be involved in supporting. But also things to challenge. Yeah. I and mean, the, the reason why Babylon falls in Revelation 18 is because its wealth is based up on human human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. we need to ask similar yeah. questions yeah, about yeah, what yeah, is yeah, our yeah. prosperity built upon? Yeah. How much yeah. is it built upon? Our flourishing built upon the, the non-flourishing of others. And, uh, well, I think, I mean, just, the, just on that, I mean, I think the revelation point is very interesting precisely because it's a direct echo of the Jeremiah 29. And since they weren't, the saints aren't called to leave the city but to be witnesses within the city so mm. that it may come, that at least some may come to glorify God. Mm. So it's not for their own sake and not for their own safety, but for mm. the sake of others. And I think mm. that, mm. that sense in which you can't, um, it, is, it is huge pressures. It's a, it's a, it yeah. can be a very mm. difficult, costly place to live. And yet, actually, there's... there's <laughs> just, <laughs> just very expensive. expensive. Yeah, and just very expensive, quite apart from the personal yeah, cost. <laughs> there's also the whole thing about a, a, a rhythm, isn't there? Mm. That, um, that normal Christian spirituality assumes there are rhythms and patterns and seasons. Mm. And big cities like London don't have, they, they're 24 hours mm-hmm. non-stop. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, finding a rhythm of, mm-hmm. of Christian discipleship mm-hmm. in a city. And I think that's right. I mean, I think that's where things like drawing on monastic rules, if you think about yeah. rural form was de- developed in relation to the seasons, but monastic was, was structured around um, prayer. Uh, you know, we need to, what, what are the things you can stru- create some rhythm and structure around? Mm. I think a rediscovery of the Christian year within an urban context mm. and, and perhaps locating that within festivals. So whether it's doing something in relation to carnivals or festivals or mm. street things that are going on and you tie that into church events mm. or personal kind of pilgrimage. But, but also but perhaps night prayer. And night prayer. <laughs> the monastic, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. a city that never sleeps. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. things like the boiler rooms and 24-7 yeah. prayer. There's the yeah. kind of elements of that yeah. there as well. Yeah. And um, on that note, we will have Pete Gregg, um, who's uh, been the pioneer of 24-7 on one of our God pods before too long. So do watch out for that. But I mean, just, just I mean, not on that that note. I mean, it seems to be that, that sort of dual role of the city as being both, you know, it's both Jerusalem and Babylon. It's mm-hmm. both immense promise, but also also threat. And, and, and that's with that reflected in in an urban spirituality would mean both a love for the city but also a, an ability to withdraw from it and to, mm-hmm. to 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 recognize its its potential for idolatry at the same time which is i think also about this rhythm of of involvement and withdrawal mm-hmm. that, that that goes on there but um Great. Well, look, um, we are getting towards the end of our time. Mike, as usual, has to go off and... Um, I do. I have to go and do some urban <laughs> spirituality. <laughs> Something like that. Celebrate <laughs> communion in the city. That's right. And um, so, yeah, we got to the end of Godpod 40. So, uh, Luke, it's been great to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, great stuff. Yeah. Just a reminder of, uh, of that book again, if you want to uh, pick up more of uh, Luke's 
Uh, thoughts on this area. Hospitality is holiness, Christian witness amid moral diversity. Published by Ashgate, isn't it, I yes, think? Right. Yeah, no, very cheap. <laughs> <laughs> well, cheaper than it was. Cheaper than holiness, usually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like cheap grace. <laughs> Hopefully not. <Yeah. laughs> Mine is very cheap. Demanding my job it. <laughs> so, um, thank you very much to Luke and also to Mike. Pleasure. And to Chris. Pleasure. And to Jane. And the wonderful Keith, who does our technical stuff Yay. as well, behind the screen. No, you're not going to cut that bit, Keith. It's got to stay in there. <laughs> so uh, thank you for listening, and um, we'll um, uh, be with you again soon. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.